Got your Bibles open to Luke 7, the passage <coughs> Dave read for us a little bit earlier. And uh, we're returning to our study in the Gospel of Luke. We've had a couple of big uh, series that we've stepped away from it. Uh, earlier this year, we did a series on the Lord's Day. Then we did a series on the uh, 12 disciples. Then we did a series on the solas of the Reformation. So now we're coming back just to plotting our way through, verse by verse, the story of Jesus Christ, which is the greatest story ever told. We come to a story today that if it, were be to, if it were to happen today would be on the front cover of every newspaper and website uh, and it, w- it would just be the overwhelming, astonishing news of the day that Christ has raised someone from the dead. Can you imagine? I drive by frequently these two funeral homes, uh, Malbergs and Muir's here in town and, and often there's a, there's a new name posted on the sign. It, it's kind of like the marquee. Uh, Joe has died or Tina has died and and sometimes there's cars and often there's mourners going in and out and can you imagine at one of those funerals if it were interrupted by Jesus and that person be raised from the dead I mean it would be a story to tell forever and here we have a story that's tucked away kind of quietly in Luke 7 uh, in a small town called Nain a widow's son is raised from the dead and there's lots of lessons in here for us today about our Lord, and I hope that, uh, that the Spirit gives us the ability to understand them today. Listen to this quote from Martin Luther as we begin. When you hear of death, you must think not only of the grave and the coffin, and of the horrible manner in which life is separated from the body, and how the body is destroyed and brought to naught, but you must think of the cause by which man is brought to death, and without which death and that which accompanies it would be impossible, namely sin and the wrath of God on account of sin. Sometimes when pastors read quotes, people check out or don't hear it. Did you hear that? When you think of death, you must not just think of that grave and the coffin and the way that the soul is separated from the body and then he kind of very, uh, very uh, discreetly talks about the after effects of death the decay of the body. Uh, You don't just think about that and how uh, all of the grief that surrounds it, but on the reason for it, on the cause for it. And the cause of all death is sin. And death would be impossible without sin and the wrath of God on account of sin. The next time we, we are tempted to think that God thinks lightly of sin, go to the cemetery. Go to the ICU. Does God think lightly of sin when every person who has ever walked the face of the earth has faced death or will face death? doesn't matter your political uh, power or association. doesn't matter your wealth or standing. doesn't matter your nationality or creed or gender. Every person brought into this world will face death. Romans chapter 5 teaches us this. That by one man, sin entered the world and death through sin or death as the result of sin. James chapter 1 says, sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. The result of sin is death. Death is caused by sin. Can you remember the first experience that you ever had with death? I think the first experience I ever had with death would be uh, mom's parents. Um, Her mother died when I was, I think, three or four years old, and the only memory I have of that is standing at the grave, or standing at the coffin. I'd never seen a dead person before, 
I didn't really even understand at three or four years old what death meant. But looking at other people and seeing them sad, I was just, that was my first experience with death. My grandfather died when I was 12 years old. I remember having a better understanding of what that meant. But you can remember your first, your first taste with death. Like this is, this is not right. Something is strange. This, everyone is sad. And is this the end result? And, and at, at, at those young ages, we're not, we're not as deeply thinking about all of the ramifications of it, especially as it relates to us. But, but only a fool would go to a funeral now and not ask himself or herself those important questions. Am I ready for death? Or what, what happens to me when I will die? This is a terrible enemy that is coming for every one of us. It's like the elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about. We, we've mentioned this before, that, that as long as we're a little church family, we're gonna be, we're, there's, there's going to be a line of people and, and we're, going to, we're going to march to each other's funerals right here in this very room. And what order will it be? We don't know. We're not asking for wagers or anything here. We're not going to make a list together or anything. But we're all going. And, and we're all going to mourn one another. The more people, in fact, we care about, the more often we'll experience the terrible grief that is associated with death. Isn't that a sad thing? The more friends we have and the more family members we have and the more people we love, the greater our grief will be. It's like every person that you get to know and care about you eventually will say goodbye to in death. This is the tragic nature of sin. God did not cause this. Our sin did. I've had some really terrible experiences as a pastor with death. I've, I think I've mentioned this to you before, and forgive me if I have, but the one time when I was wearing our pastor's pager, this tells you how long ago it was, and the hospital would text him or, or buzz him when an emergency would happen and whenever he would go on vacation he would leave it with me because he was the hospital chaplain and he happened to go on vacation this one time when there was a, a car wreck with four teenagers all of them were killed three in the morning i get this buzz so i drive to lapeer hospital um and and all i can remember is looking this was years ago i, I look through this glass and there's four rooms with four dead bodies and four sets of parents wailing just just wailing over their, dead, over their dead children. And I'm standing there in this nurse in this room, and they, they can't hear or see us, of course. We're just looking at these rooms. And, and the nurse says, I'm so glad you're here. You know what I'm thinking? I, this is beyond me. This is totally beyond me. I go in the rooms. I put my hands on the people. I, I prayed. None of them, to my knowledge, were believers. There's no hope of everlasting life to promise. Uh, I'm thinking I'm about to go home where my babies are sleeping in bed and I'm not, they're going to wake up tomorrow and there's going to be this complete... When we are confronted with that type of trauma, we're reminded, as Luther said, not just of the grief and the tragedy, but also what lies beyond that. Luther is saying, uh, when we hear of death, we must not just think of that. We must think of all that goes before it and the sin which brings that death about. It's a little easier to handle death when we think, well, they've had a long life. I mean, it's very, it, it, not very easy, but it's, it's much, much easier to handle death when we know the person was a believer in Jesus Christ and we understand, and, and especially when they've had a, a long and full life. Right? We, people say that at funerals often. Well, they, they lived a long life. But when, when we put babies and children in the ground, that becomes far more difficult. 
And that is the story that we have in Luke chapter 7 today. And I, I want you to understand the grief and pain that is existing in this story and not just see it as, a, as an account to, that we can kind of disconnect from. Death is the lurking enemy coming for each one of us, and it came for this man in Nain in Luke 7. Dave read it earlier, but let's just, let's just quickly glance at it again. It's only five or six verses. Soon afterwards, it says in verse 11, some translations say the next day. This could be the very next day after Jesus healed the centurion's servant. We just came off of that story. And, and then he goes to this town called Nain, him and his disciples. And the Bible tells us a great crowd was with him. He came to the gate of the town. Just kind of picture this in your mind, right? He comes to the gate of the town, and behold, a man who has died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. The Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said to her, Do not weep. He came and touched the buyer, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, arise. Pause there. I, I, I know we know that he raises the man from the dead, and it's a very happy ending, although it's not really a happy ending. The guy's going to die again. Right, this is a temporary postponement of death. But as we've said, when children die, and it's often been said parents aren't supposed to bury children, and some of you can imagine that sort of pain. I know some of you have that in your, in your background and in, your, in the providence of God. He's, he has uh, borne you that burden or given you that trial, and you understand that, whether it's through uh, some sort of miscarriage or accident or tragedy. Some of you have had that issue. And when we read this story and we know that Jesus raised the guy from the dead, we, we kind of like to get to that point right away instead of understanding the grief and trauma that exists with this person. Jesus departs to this town called Nain. He's leaving from Capernaum. Capernaum is about 25 miles from Nain. In fact, Nain is such a an, an nondescript, unknown town. This is the only place in the Bible it's mentioned. Isn't that interesting? The only place it's mentioned is right here in Luke 7. It's 25 miles from Capernaum, which means it's really a full day's walk. It's a marathon. 25 miles. It's not a destination. It's not on the way to anywhere else. And Jesus, the day after, perhaps the day after, but in, other, in, in any case, soon after healing this centurion servant, decides to go to Nain. 25 miles away. A nowhere village with nothing people. You know, just a... Just one of these cities that has kind of vanished from the face of the earth now. If this story had not been recorded in the Bible, this would be another one of those tragic, out-of-the-way stories from across the globe and through the centuries where people die and they bury their loved ones. And they mourn about it and they go on with life and there's nothing to do but grieve and mourn. Now this situation, we, we read it, is a little more desperate than like we said, a guy who's lived a long and full life. This is a young man. It uh, doesn't say exactly how old, but Jesus does call him young man. And he has a mother who is a widow. And so this woman has been to another funeral. She's been to the funeral of her husband. And now she is going to bury her own son, her one and only son. She has no one left. It's a desperate situation. And you can imagine the grief. And the Bible doesn't give us any details about how the man died, if he was, it was an accident or a long history of health problems, just that he was being carried out. Now think for a minute, put, your, put yourself in the position of this woman, right? 
Here's the image that I'd like to leave with you. She would be walking out in front of the casket or the buyer. The buyer is just a, it would not be like a coffin. It's more like a stretcher. You can imagine kind of a stretcher, uh, like a, a, a mat that would be borne maybe by four or six people, probably carried up high, maybe on the shoulders with the dead body lying right on it in the open. And uh, so that's, that's the image of, uh, of verse number, um, where is it? I'm sorry, verse number 14, where the bearers are carrying this buyer and the man dead upon it. She walking out in front of the casket, this would be the, the tradition, she walking in front of the casket with musicians and even in, in, in those days you paid people to come and mourn for and with you. And uh, the Bible says many from the city, verse 12, had followed with her. A, cons- a, a great crowd came with Jesus, but a considerable crowd, verse 12, came with her. There's all kinds of people. You can imagine the city hearing about this. The widow woman doesn't even give us her name. The widow woman has lost her only son. And you can imagine the grief that the rest of the, fam- the, rest of the, the community would share with her. And they gather out with her at that evening. This would have been at twilight, at dusk. The, bo- the boy died sometime that day. The body would not be left overnight. This was the day of the death. It would also be the day of the funeral. Carried on that stretcher to be buried somewhere outside of the city and then to return to the city and just mourn and grieve. That was this lady's destiny at this moment. Okay. Now the Lord draws near to the gate and sees all this happening. This is such a great scene. I feel like the, I feel like the audience is a little dead right now here. I don't know why. Maybe you're having, uh, what is it, tetrafan or whatever the turkey, turkey uh, chemical is. You're still sleepy here. But this is an exciting story. Okay? And I know we're in the grief part here. But the Lord draws near to the gate. And I want to point out three things about the Lord here. And then we'll make application. I don't have a long message. I, whenever I don't have a long message, it goes real long. But, but uh, we'll, try to, we'll try to make it brief. So the three things I want to point out about Jesus is his purpose, his pity, and his power. Purpose, pity, and power. So we want to shift from the lady and her grief. We, I, I hope we feel that. I, I, tried to express, I, I hope we can sense that, right? Because kind of what I'm sensing now is, here's, here's just what I'm sensing, is like I could basically put the flannel graph pictures on the board and walk you through the story and, and you're kind of like, yeah, we've heard this before. Well, Jesus is about to raise a guy from the dead. And there's some application for us. His purpose, his power, his pity, and his power. What's amazing in this story is not mentioned by Luke at all, but it's the providence of Christ. The providence and purpose of Christ. Now, the man had died that day. And Jesus has, were you listening? How long of a journey to make from Capernaum to Nain? A day. He wakes up in the morning, and he's walking all day. In the middle of his walk, this guy dies. They start preparing. Jesus is still walking. Get, get this. He's walking from Capernaum to Nain. He's just walking. 11 o'clock, the guy dies, let's say. Jesus is walking. 2 o'clock, we better hire some mourners. They gather together the people. 4 o'clock, they're preparing. Twilight, whatever. 7 o'clock, Jesus walking, walking, walking. Did you see what happens in the story? They're both, they both converge at the gate at the same time. What a lucky coincidence that is. Right? Oh, good thing Jesus was there. What is happening here? What is hap- Do you understand what's happening here? 
Jesus in his purpose and providence is walking and is going to make it with his crowd. He's got a considerable crowd with him. Can you imagine? Why are we walking to Nain? Right? All his disciples, all the people still following him, still curious about him. And then hit the lady with her considerable crowd meeting at the gate. And you got this group who are grieving. And then you got this group, really, who's going to, it's just going to provide glory. And these two things are converging. Isn't this neat? So neat. Do you believe all that's simply coincidental? Jesus, in his purpose and providence, arrive at the right time to help this person's wrecked life. Now, we know that other people probably died that day that Jesus could have walked to. That's what's amazing, too. That in his providence, he chose this family, this woman, this purpose for him. Jesus comes to us in our brokenness. He arrives at the right moment. And something I want to talk about later, he sees and he knows. And this is, this to me, the raising of the dead is almost an anticlimactic part of the story. The fact that he and his group meet the other group at the gate at the same moment is the cool part of the story for me. Obviously, Jesus raising the dead is off the charts too. But isn't that just a fascinating thing that he arrives at that gate to meet this woman? And she has no clue. We don't know her name. We don't even know really her response to the miracle. But Jesus says, I see, I care, I'm going to do something about this, and I'm going to arrive, boom, at the right moment to solve this person's problem. Jesus sees and he knows. I'll talk about that in a second. His purpose. Secondly, his pity. His pity. Not only does he have a purpose and a providential plan to help this woman, he has pity on her. Notice it in verse number 13. Uh, well, let's look at verse 12 again, just because I want to catch that again. He drew near the gate of the town, and behold, a man who had died was being carried out. Same exact moment. And we already talked about this grief. The only son of his mother, she was a widow. A considerable crowd was with her. Then verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Now, I don't know Again, Christ laid aside his divine attributes. So him being led to the city of Nain, I believe was a Holy Spirit thing. I don't, I don't, I can't, I'm, I'm away from the pulpit right now because this is a speculation. I can't say this categorically from the Bible. But I think the Holy Spirit led Christ to that gate. I don't think it was necessarily Christ in his, using his own ability to understand that. I know we're kind of tying those two things together. But, but him coming to the gate, I think then he sees this woman. I don't know if the whole time he's walking, he's thinking, oh, I'm going to meet a woman there. I'm gonna meet I don't know that. I, just, I can't answer that question. But when he does see that woman, he immediately has compassion on her. It's a great word that means a feeling in the pit of somebody's stomach. It's like you're moved to, to have pity on a person. Like all of you should have had when I was explaining the widow of Nain. You should say, oh, that's just too bad. And, and we don't really have that pity because we don't know this woman. She's a nondescript person from an out-of-the-way place that we've never met before. But when you get a phone call from somebody who's gone through some sort of grief and trauma, you get that feeling in the pit of your stomach. You say, I wish I could do something to help. That's what Jesus had when he sees this woman. And this word compassion is mentioned a lot when it comes to Jesus. Just, I just listed a few places. Matthew 20, verse 34, when he had compassion on the blind people. 
Uh, Mark 1, verse 41, there was a leper whom he cleansed, and he said, I have compassion on you. Mark 6, verse 34, the Bible tells us when he looked at the multitude, he had compassion on them. Aren't you glad for a compassionate Savior? Not somebody, think about this. He meets somebody who's going through death because of what, Martin Luther? Because of sin. Sin against who? Against him. He's there to see it. Wouldn't, wouldn't our reaction be, got that right? Right? That's what you get. Isn't that, isn't that kind of the reaction? Well, you sinned against me. What did you expect? He's having compassion. I think we said this uh, Tuesday night. He, he has compassion on rebels. He builds his kingdom of rebels. One of the great places where this word compassion is used is when the father of the prodigal son is staring out at the road looking for his son to return. Again, the son has wronged the father, taken all of his inheritance and squandered it. Um, basically, when he left the father, he's saying, I wish you were dead, which is really what the essence of all sin is. It's telling God, we wish you weren't a part of our lives. We rebel against you. And the father looks at the son, and when he saw him from a long way, he looked, and what does the Bible say? He had compassion on him. That same word, had compassion on him. I love that thought. The pity is so great that Jesus has compassion even on the people whose problems are caused by their own rebellion against him. I don't know if that's making sense to you or not. But since sin is the root cause of this event, and rebellion against Christ is the root cause of that, here he comes and meets these people, and yet he still has compassion on them. Blows me away. Turn to Isaiah chapter 40. I want to show you one thing here before we come back. Isaiah chapter 40. This is something that Aaron Coffey shared with us. I think the first time he was here, maybe it was even back at the other building, and I, I remembered it, and I, I want to just kind of insert it here because we often wonder if Jesus really cares and if Jesus really knows all about our issues and problems. And I think the fact that he cares even despite the fact that we are rebels against him is kind of a, it, it just an awesome thought. But if you look at Isaiah, verse, Isaiah chapter 40 and verse number 20, uh, let's look at 25 and we'll kind of come into the place where I want to mention. Uh, it says, To whom then will you compare me uh, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high. So basically, saying, look at the stars. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Now here's the verse uh, that I kind of want to focus on. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right or my judgment is disregarded by my God. Apparently, the nation of Jacob was asking these two questions or, or making these two statements. My way is hidden from God, and my right is disregarded, or my judgment or my case is disregarded by God. Now this is, I credit Aaron with this because it was, it's so helpful. The, the, the nation is making these two statements, and we tend to make these two statements too. When the nation is saying, my way is hidden from the Lord, maybe you even wrote in your Bible when Aaron was here and you got it. When he says, my way is hidden from the Lord, what is the nation really saying? God doesn't what? God doesn't see. God doesn't see. That's what the nation is saying. My, you might even write that right in your Bible. God doesn't see. 
my way is hidden from the Lord, God doesn't see. And then when he says, my, my right or my judgment or my case is disregarded for my God, it's not that God doesn't see, it's that God doesn't what? Care. God doesn't care. It's like, okay, he knows, but he doesn't care. And then he goes on to say in the passage, don't you know that the Lord is without faint and he doesn't grow weary and he understands everything and he gives power to those who are struggling? The point of Isaiah 40 verses 25 to the end is, not only does God see, but God cares and God wants to do something about it. God wants to express his love and his power to those who need it. He does see and he does care. Some of you are in a situation, you go back to Luke 7 now, but some of you are in a situation, maybe we can ask, maybe you've asked that question of God. Don't you see? Don't you care? And I, wanna, I want to use this story to remind you that he does. He does see and he does care about all of our trials and issues. I was listening to a song uh, last night. Um, it's an old song called In His Love and Pity. In His Love and In His Pity. Again, when, when sometimes when people read things you check out, this is, this is so good. It's an old song that we don't sing. In His Love and In His Pity. He redeemed us. In his love and in his pity, he provided heaven. Never has another loved us like the Savior loves. How can one suspend himself upon a cross and die for me? But he did love. He did have pity on us. He provided heaven at last. He suffered in the garden for you and my, for your sin and mine. See him trudge up Calvary's mountain, not my will, but thine. Cursing mobs, angry soldiers spit upon his face. Then the sky and winter darkness proved the depth to which our sin would go. And Jesus died. He did love. He had pity on us. Shall we not return the favor and live each day for our dear Savior as one day he will return for us? I love that. In his love and in his pity. And he pitied people who were spitting in his own face and rebelling against him. His power, his purpose, his pity, now we come to the last, and his power. And I told you we were going to be brief today, and here's kind of where we move to the end. Jesus comes over, back to Luke 7. He stops the funeral procession. He interrupts it. As I said, can you imagine this happening? And You can just imagine it happening today if I'm up here delivering a funeral message and someone comes and walks in and interrupts. Everybody would be like, what? Doesn't this man understand what's going on? This woman is grieving. What's he doing? He comes up and touches the buyer, which of course is disastrous according to the law because the dead body, to touch anything, would make him ceremonially unclean. The difference is nothing can taint the character of Christ. Nothing makes him unclean. He is perfectly pure and clean. What he touches does not make him unclean, but what he touches he makes pure and clean. And that's what's going to happen here. He, he moves and touches the buyer and the bearer stands still. What's this guy doing? And uh, he speaks one word to the man. He says, young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak. <laughs> you get that? I mean, it, it, it's, almost like, it, it, it's almost like if you heard that for the first time, you're like, no, nah. come on, Right? The dead man sat up and began to speak. And, and when I was studying this, you know, what I, you know what I asked myself? You know what I asked myself right here? What did I ask? What did he say? 
Come on. What did he say? The Bible doesn't tell us. I wonder why. You know why? Because we should be more concerned about what Christ did than what this guy says. I imagine all this guy's, I mean, what did he say? Hallelujah. He say, you know, let's eat. I don't, what did he say? Perfectly restored to health. The Bible says Jesus escorts him back to his mother. Right? He gives him to his mother. Fear seized them all. <laughs> Christ has stepped in and in the face of death created joy because of his life-giving power. What is the response of the people to his power? Fear, right? There's, three, there's really three responses to his, to his power. Fear, the word is phobos, you know, phobia. I mean, this is terror. This is abject terror, right? If this happened today, someone touched a coffin, and it's a closed casket, and it goes, hey, everybody. I mean, that's what happened. That's what happened. You wouldn't be laughing. You would be totally freaked out. I'm just trying to give us a context for it, right? Because we, we can't even grasp this. But that, that's what would happen. We would be afraid. We would be out of our minds. Why are they so afraid? They realize they are in the presence of God. Or at least a God. Because who can raise the dead? It's the response of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. It's the response of John in John chapter 1. It's the response of the men in the boat when Jesus calms the storm. They freak out. People in the presence of God are always uh, gripped with fear. It always, it always blows me away. I'm going to run into the arms of Jesus, right? The presence of God brings fear. It also brought worship. That's their second response because as they glorified God, they knew that this man had done something only God can do and they began to worship him. And then the third response is they came to some conclusions about what happened. They said uh, God had visited the people. If you were to glance back at Luke chapter 1 and verse 78 and the song of Zechariah uh, in that Zechariah says uh, that God will visit his people. And they also say a great prophet has, uh, has arisen among us. And then it says this report about him spread. Now, I don't know what report specifically it's talking about. Is the report spreading that he raised a guy from the dead or is the report spreading that this is a prophet or is the report spreading that God had visited the people? But whatever the report was spreading and whatever the conclusions were, they were not the completely accurate conclusion. And this is the saddest part of the story. They, they didn't get it all. They didn't get it all. It's not a great prophet has visited them. It's not it. They were connecting what Jesus had done to which prophet do you believe in the Old Testament? Elijah, Elisha. Because these are guys that raised people from the dead. These were the great prophets. Elijah and Moses were the two great prophets of the Old Testament. They're connecting him to Elijah. Remember that's what even they say, who, who, does the son of, who do people say that I am? Some say you are Elijah. A great prophet has come. This is, this is something like we haven't seen in hundreds of years. God is visiting his people through this man. They're, they're not grasping the complete realization that this is God in the flesh. And sadly, that is the report that goes out. Now, can we make some applications about this? Uh, Spurgeon says this. This is good. That Christ's miracles are always meant to be parables. 
that they're not meant just to impress us, but they're meant to instruct us. And it would be terrible if we went away just impressed with what Jesus could do instead of being instructed about Him and His power and His character. And so I just leave you with a couple of quick things and then we'll stop. We've already talked about one thing, and that is that Jesus sees and Jesus cares. So I don't need to say that necessarily again, but just to be a reminder to you again, a 25-mile walk for the sole purpose of raising one guy from the dead? He took one day of his life, his earthly life and ministry, to walk to a guy who had died to raise him. And again, the man would die again. But Jesus is saying, this is not the way it's supposed to be. I see and I care. And so whatever your situation is this morning, let's remember that Jesus sees and Jesus cares. But the last two, are, I want to make more of a symbolic application. Okay, Yes, we know that Jesus sees and cares. But, but, but let's equate this uh, physical death to spiritual death. And let's make this application first. Okay? Um, instead of just making it like a quick statement of application, let me kind of introduce it like this way. If we were to hear today, later today, um, that someone in our congregation passed away unexpectedly, our response would rightfully be sorrow and grief. What is our grief when it relates to people who are spiritually dead? There is a lot of grief going on in the passage. There's people professionally paid to mourn. There's the woman who's rightfully mourning. There's the the city who has gathered together behind this woman to mourn. They're they're rightfully mourning. But but how about grieving over spiritual death? Why, Why do we grieve over physical death? What, 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 what is there about it that makes us grieve? Well, primarily it's the fact of separation. There's, there's, there's no fellowship with that person any longer. Well, what about spiritual death? Someone who has not been made alive in Christ, who goes to an eternal hell, where, where, is there any grief over that? And, and here's the thing. Everybody is spiritually dying as well. They're, they're spiritually dead. And, and where is the grief and the sorrow that we as individuals or we as a church have for those type of people. For the people in the community that we're ministering to, for friends and family and neighbors who are lost and without Christ, is our, is, does our grief reach that same appropriate level? Do, do we mourn for people who are spiritually dead? I think it's a great, a great thing to think about. And the third thing is, the third application is to realize that when Jesus touches the spiritually dead, he brings life. And he is the only solution for that. We just come off the five solas and Christ alone. There was no other person who could meet that widow at that gate and solve that person's problem. None. And there is no other solution for the spiritually dead, except to be presented with the gospel of Christ and to receive it in all of its truth and apply it to your own personal self to create spiritual life within you. And, and I wonder if there's a person in the audience today whom Christ is speaking to and saying, young man or young woman, arise, and he wants to provide spiritual life to you because of his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his powerful resurrection which paid the penalty for your sins. Someone once, this is a a trite little quote, but it's it's good and it relates to our story today. It's 
if, if you're born once, you die twice. You're born twice, you die once. Isn't that good? Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. Anyone who is born again, even though they're going to die physically, the Bible tells John 11, yet shall they live. John 11:25. I am the resurrection life. Whoever believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. That gives us hope not just for people who we love that have gone on to heaven, but also hope for ourselves, and it gives us a hopeful message to share with others who are in this type of grief. We praise the Lord for his life-giving power. Shall we pray? Father, it's good to be here in your house today and to hear and study your word. And I pray that you would uh, not just impress us with what we've read today, but instruct us and strengthen us. Father, help us to stand amazed in the presence of Christ who empowered us spiritually, gave us spiritual life. We think we sang it today. We are blinded by our sin, but then your Spirit gave me life. And help us to grieve over spiritual deadness in our own community and be bold to share the gospel and the hope that Christ offers. You changed this widow's life. You've changed our lives spiritually, Father, by giving us the life-giving power of Christ and we pray that we would spread that accurate report as we give the gospel to people whom we love. Help us to realize too you see and you care. There's so many different things we've learned today and I pray that the Spirit would seal them to our hearts as we leave this place. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.